Hello, and welcome to Talking Shit About, I think it's episode 19. We're recording this, <laughs> I don't know, we're recording this the night before it comes out. I finished researching, by finished researching, I mean read up to this point in Jess Walter's book. Yeah, finished typing up a script this evening, and so now we're going to record, and probably not going to do any editing, so we're going to do our best. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. So we're just going to get into it. If you haven't listened to part one, go ahead and listen to that first. If this is your first episode, definitely listen to part one or start with another episode. Um, this is a weird one to just kind of jump into part way. So real quick before we start, Gil, would it? can you do a quick... Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot. Can you do a quick recap of what we talked about last time? Just like... Super quick, like, one or two sentences, like... Uh, we talked about, basically, Randy and Vicky meeting. Um, I think the impetus that moved them to Idaho. I'll, I'm going to be completely honest. I can't totally remember what all we covered last yeah, time. Yeah, it was a whole last month ago. So, yeah, we covered the Weavers, their beliefs, and we covered a lot of um, the Aryan nations and their history... So again, maybe I meant to listen to the last episode um, before this, but I got a new job, yay! And it started like right away. So I, like this week, so I haven't had time to do any of the things I was putting off until the last minute. So that's what I get for doing that. So I probably could have listened to the last episode before we sat down. That would have been wise. Uh, hindsight 2020, maybe next time. Okay. <laughs> so. Don't bring up 2020. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think in everyone's brains, it's still 2020. Yeah. So I think I may have mentioned this last time, but the one big thing I have with Jess Walter's book is that it reads more like a story or a novel. Like, sometimes he, like, differentiates if something's being said by someone for sure. I don't know. It's like... There's just, like, no... He doesn't establish, like, this is a recorded conversation that so-and-so had. It just, like, reads like a like a story. And it, it it's frustrating for me because, like, I want to know, well, like, is this agent saying Randy Weaver said X, Y, Z? Because, like... Or, or is it, like, this is from a recorded conversation that they had. So, like, this is for sure what everybody said. Um... It's just like, you know, like on a cool, crisp morning in, you know, 1992. And it's just like, I don't know. Um, maybe you're into it. And it's like, maybe if I weren't researching, I'd be more into it. But it's for my brain mode right now. It's like not not quite clicking. But um, I do my best to differentiate what is like provable and then what is just so-and-so says this. So doing my best. Um, let's get into it. I'm sorry if the dog is making noises in the background. Yeah. Um, we might have to stop and take her out at some point, but yeah. we'll see how far we can get. This is going to be a short episode, by the way, So, but you should be thankful that you're getting one. Okay. As mentioned in the previous episode, Randy attended the 1986 Aryan World Congress with Frank Kumnick, and there Frank Kumnick introduced him to Gustav Antony Magisano. Gus was a biker gang member interested in dealing weapons and working for the Order and the Order 2, the very cool names that we talked about. 
On January 20th, 1987, the three met at a park in Sandpoint and talked inside Randy's Jeep. Gus had been expecting to meet with Frank only about weapons, so he was surprised to see Randy there. As an icebreaker, the three made some racist comments about MLK and then got down to business. But before they began, Frank and Gus... Frank asked Gus if he would do an electric scan to identify any wires or weapons, and he said um, he would, so he consented. The three grabbed some lunch at Connie's Motor Inn. Gus took a potty break, they got coffee, and then they got back in the Jeep to drive to a secluded spot. There, Frank performed his scan on Gus with this little, like, doodad that he had. He was, like, bragging that he got it from, like, a, for a dollar or something at a <laughs> like, um, pawn shop or something. Um... And he passed the scan, but still, Frank pulled out a 22 Derringer pistol, cocked it, and pointed it at Gus's head. It stayed there for a few minutes while Frank and Randy intimidated him, but eventually the gun was put away, and they went back to their talk of revitalizing the order and how you just can't trust anybody these days. Then the man, the man, then the men went to, I think it's Pop Andrea's Pizza, where they met up with Vicky and Frank's wife, Mary Lou. More general racist and xenophobic discussion ensued. In his bio, Randy recalls how Frank and Gus would talk openly, too openly, about robbing armories and stealing firearms. And, like, Frank's quoted in Jess's book as coming up with some, like, weird shit, like, involving, like, crazy glue and, like, all sorts of stuff. So, kind of interesting. But, anywho's, um, Gus was really interested in making plans for their hate group. And Frank asked, um, all the names get so confusing. Gus asked Frank. Oh, Gus asked Frank. Yes. Gus asked Frank to give him a list the next time they met of a group of things that they want to get done each month, like a little schedule of like activities that they want done each month. And it's just yeah. kind of like... They put it in their planner. Yeah, for your planner. And if that sounds weird, it's because it is weird. And that's because Gus wasn't Gus. Gus was actually Kenneth Fadley, a private investigator from Spokane. For the entire interaction, Fadley had been armed with a 22 pistol strapped to his ankle and a wire going up his left sleeve, which he had frantically adjusted when he was able to sneak off to the bathroom earlier. Um, Frank only scanned his right arm, so not his left arm where the wire was. And before um, Frank could scan his leg, um, Gus had kind of like grabbed the scanner from him and was like, oh, what's this? Blah, blah, blah. And they kind of like bullshitted for a second and then he put it away so he never actually scanned where the gun was. So Fadley was buddied up with an ATF agent by the name of Herb Byerly and he had been on the other end of the wire that Fadley had worn on January 20th. He was gathering intelligence on criminal and violent activities that the Aryan nations may be planning. Later in the Senate hearings about Ruby Ridge, the subcommittee on... Uh, the subcommittee on Ruby Ridge would note that Fadley virtually no training before he was sent to infiltrate the Aryan nations. Sorry, I'm wrestling with a dog while I'm doing this because she's very needy right now. She's not used to me being at work. According to the Jordansons, the Weaver family seemed to be less paranoid and less extreme in their beliefs in the months prior to the begin of, beginning of the siege. Uh, it was during this time that Vicky's father helped construct a guest house, which many sources refer to as the menstruation shed, and say that the girls were forced out there when Aunt Flo came around. But actually, Vicky used it more as a retreat to have a quiet space of her own. Um, that's according to her sister. It was more of like, kind of Vicky's like, I'm on my period, kind of just everybody piss off kind of shed. It wasn't like, oh, the girls are filled, like, 
there's yeah. that narrative going around. It's like that's not necessarily what it was. Like right. that, like people sometimes need space. Yeah, in general. I made a note that like honestly, a menstruation shed sounds dope as hell. Um, I don't have anywhere to build one. So. Yeah, no <laughs> tool shed first. <laughs> Uh, during this time, Randy also ran for sheriff, handing out business cards that said, vote Weaver for sheriff, and they were handwritten on one side, and then on the other side, it said, get out of jail free. Um, he told one newspaper reporter, quote, I question whether they, they should pass any laws to protect the individual from themselves. I believe in what I call scriptural socialism. Take care of your neighbor. He's all about not wearing seatbelts and helmets are stupid. He's like, he said, okay, helmets and <laughs> seatbelts are stupid. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like one of those things where you like, you're like, you see, you see a word and you're like some like keywords and you're like, oh, that, okay, yeah. And then yeah, and scriptural like, socialism, you mean scripture. Uh, <laughs> and then it's like, oh, okay. You yeah. just, you just, yeah. Um, at the time of the we'll election. Like idiot. Yeah. There were 7,000 registered voters in the county, and the turnout was 1,500. Randy lost the Republican primary. Um, he got 102 votes versus his competitor, Lonnie Elkstrom, who was the Boundary County's first bailiff, and he received 383 votes. Huh. That's... So, he, he did all right. He definitely didn't win, but he had a following. Oh, well, he had 10.5% of all voters, and that was a primary, so he's really only looking at maybe, I don't know why. Idaho, so it's probably pretty Republican, but it's also the 80s, and that stuff was different. Huh. That's... He did all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Better than I did my rant for sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, to be married to the sheriff. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop for you. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, okay. Tensions were increasing between Frank Kumnick and Randy. Randy said that Frank was becoming too radical and told Fadley so one time when he came to visit the family. Frank was also there, um, but he left abruptly after he and Randy got into a heated argument. In fact, a month after Randy first met Fadley, Fadley and Frank had gone for a hike and talked about kidnapping kids from the Rocky Mountain Academy, a high-end school that Frank worked at, and to hold the kids hostage to help fund a white uprising. Um, apparently, like, Clint Eastwood's kids went there. It was a bunch of, like, super yuppy-duppy kids. And then there's like, they were going to go after, like, Jewish kids, too. And, like... Yeah, sounds about right. That was the whole thing. Um, Frank says it was Fadley's idea. Fadley says it was Frank's idea. Either way, um, Frank was fired from his job after his van was spotted at the Aryan Nations compound. And so far, at this point... All the ATF had on Frank was a sawed-off rifle that Fadley claims Frank sold him. At that point in time as well, the ATF was beginning to focus more on Montana and the more supremacist action that was happening over there. Uh, militias were also beginning to pop up in the big sky state. The big one being the Militia of Montana, very cleverly named. Yeah, still around. And it inspired many copycats. I have a note here to ask you if you have any thoughts you want to plug on militias. Uh, oh, God. Uh, What's a militia, well, real quick? That is, I mean, I don't have like a dictionary definition yeah, in front of me, but, but like, broadly speaking, it's a yeah. group of people that train together with some in some kind of in some cohesive and organized way, 
um, train together with firearms broadly, generally. Um, there's many, many types. It's it. It's hard to define. Okay. I'm finding. That'll do it. <laughs> I could get into the weeds, but I don't want to. Yeah, no, we don't need to get into the weeds. This is going to be a short episode, everybody. Um, I wanna, I wanted to like have the siege be its own, own thing. Like when I say the siege, also I need to clarify. I should probably use something else, but like no, that's the a, that's an accurate. Well, like of what it is. we're gonna get into the siege a little bit today, but like the actual like. Um, the heated events versus the heat, the, where the the siege heated up. Yes. But, yeah. Either way, they, the active, the high activity siege was for several weeks or a month or so. Yeah, we'll get but, into it in this episode. But they were basically blockaded and stuck up on the mountain for the better part of a year. 18 months. Oh, better part of two years. Yep. Um, so that's that. On October 11th of 1989, Fadley met with Randy to ask where he could find guns, specifically sawed-off shotguns. At the time, Randy and Vicky were renting a place down by the highway and couldn't afford their rent, and Randy told Fadley that they were on hard times. Fadley suggested they take a trip to Montana to sell some guns, but at the very last minute, as they were like ready to go, Randy's distrust got the better of him, and he didn't make the trip. But not before he agreed to saw off some Remington Model 870 shotguns. There's some debate, again, between Randy and Fadley. What's that? Oh, it's a good shotgun. I hear it's, is it common for duck hunting? Uh, Remington 870 is, like, probably one of the top three most produced and sold 12-gauge pump shotguns in the world. Gotcha. Um, Especially in the 80s, they were very good. Or, I guess, in the early 90s. They didn't slump until the late 2000s um, in quality. But that is really unimportant. They just don't make them like they used to. <laughs> they don't to. make them like they used what? to. Uh, Yeehaw. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> um, there's some debate, again, between Randy and Fadley about where Fadley said to cut it. And then they get into this whole situation about he said he was going to pay me this. He said I would pay him that. Um but Randy claimed Fadley offered him $700 for the two guns that he sought off. One was a pump action and the other was a single shot, and both had been cut about five and a half inches shorter than the legal allowance. In order for this to be legal, Randy would have had to apply to the government and cough up $200 registration, which of course he did and not file do. file as a short barrel rifle. Yes. Um, the two met again in Sandpoint on October 24th of that year, where Fadley handed Randy $300 rather than the $700 he was promised. They met again in November, where Fadley paid Randy another 100 During this meeting, Randy accused Fadley of being a snitch, which he, of course, denied. This is, again, a game of he said, he said, but i got to be honest, I kind of... Well, I don't know about Frank. He had some pretty bonkers-ass ideas, but I don't doubt that... Frank is the one. No, god damn it. <laughs> all the names are getting so mixed up in my head because I was just like doing this all at once. Um, Gus. Gus. Gus is the narc name. Yes. Gus um, asked Randy to saw off the shotguns. Like, that's 
my opinion, or at least put him in a situation where like he felt that was his only option. Well, and that's like, that's really standard for like these kinds of cases too, where the ATF or FBI or any any law enforcement agent broadly, they try that. It's also what gives credence to the idea that Gus was the one sort of who was sort of like introducing the idea mm-hmm. of the kidnap idea or like reinvigorating the order is the idea is to but through encouragement you could call it entrapment but encouragement getting someone to commit a crime so that you can arrest them for this crime and you offer as a plea deal that they that you what they offer to the person who is arrested is a plea deal to uh cooperate with basically become another undercover informant and so it's pretty it's a pretty credible belief that uh the gus the uh the fed narc it asked for things to be um i think gus it was gus's idea to saw it off i don't think it was randy's Randy obviously agreed to do it, which was stupid, especially with the guy you kind of thought was a narc. Yeah, right? He's like, but I did it anyway. Clearly, he didn't didn't doubt him that much. Um, Yeah. Well, he was, was like, real desperate for money, so I think that was, like, kind of... Get into (laughs) the law enforcement exploiting poor people to commit crimes (laughs) and they can use them as confidential informants, but, you know, that gets... (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... uh, Gus's cover had been blown. He doesn't know if it was by Randy or somebody else, but he's out. Um, and he wouldn't see Randy again until Randy's trial in 1993. Sweet pea, I don't know what to do for you. The feds finally had what they needed to blackmail Randy into becoming an informant, like you said. Six months later, Byerly contacted Randy and said that he would be charged with multiple accounts of federal firearms violations if he didn't comply with their plan to use him as an informant. Randy told the man to go to hell. The Weaver family took a vote, and none of the kids wanted their father to turn himself in, so he didn't. Things were tough financially. Their only steady income was an occasional $80 check from their settlement with Terry Kinnison. They felt like the world was coming down around them. Another six months passed before Randy and Vicky were arrested at gunpoint on Ruby Creek Road as they attempted to help two people with their broken-down car, who turned out to be agents, and then there were more agents hiding out in the woods. Vicky was released after about 20 minutes, but Randy was taken to Coeur d'Alene County Jail. The next day, Randy was released after signing his property over as a promissory bond for his scheduled court date, rather than the pay the $10,000 price tag. This meant that if Randy didn't show up or if he lost his case, his family would lose their home, or so he thought. It turns out that the magistrate was incorrect when he told Randy he would lose his property. And uh, uh, Randy had a special guest there to speak to his character, and it was Wayne Jones, security chief for the Aryan Nations. Um, on their ride home that day, Vicky was praying to Yahweh and received a message that the family should stay on the mountain. Gotta trust those messages from Yahweh. Yeah. Vicky wrote a letter to her sister in January of 1991, and to her sister, it seemed to be a goodbye note. Days later, a letter would show up at the U.S. Attorney's Office addressed to the servant of the Queen of Babylon from Mrs. Vicky Weaver. 
It contains some Bible quotes, some stuff about Yahweh. You send that to a P.O. box? <laughs> <laughs> and a quote from Bob Matthews, the former leader of the order that we talked about in part one. Uh, will you read this quote for me, my love? A long-forgotten wind is starting to blow. Do you hear the approaching thunder? It is that of the awakened Saxon. War is upon the land. The tyrant's blood will flow. Perhaps unsurprisingly, they took this letter as a threat. I'm not sure what Vicky's intentions were when she sent the letter, but it did not help their case. Was, was this sent? Wait, this was sent to the feds, or was this? This sent was to sent Babylon? to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Okay, yeah. Who serves the Queen of Babylon? Who? Yes. <laughs> I'd like to send this general delivery to the Queen of Babylon. Oh, it was addressed to someone specific. I didn't write down okay. his name. I was kind of like, all right, there's enough names. Clearly, I'm struggling with the names. Yeah, it's unimportant. Um, also, we don't need another one. Um, Randy received a notice stating that his court date was scheduled for March 20th, 1990, but the actual date of the trial was February 20th, 1990. On top of that, the original date was actually February 19th, but the judge had decided he didn't want anyone traveling on a holiday. So when Randy didn't show in February, he was a wanted man. Wait, they... They gave him a bad court date schedule? Yeah. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's fucked up. Yeah. Um, and Randy's, um, yeah, super fucked up. Uh, Randy's failure to appear warrant went out. The chief deputy marshal in Boise, Ron Evans, sent a letter to D.C. stating that Randy Weaver could be, quote, Another Bob Matthews in his homestead. Another Whidbey Island standoff. It would later be revealed in the Senate hearings that despite the Attorney General's office knowing about the date mix-up, they, quote, Nevertheless, indicted Weaver on March 14th for his failure to appear six days before the date he officially had been given. At least equally disturbing is the fact that prosecutors failed to inform the grand jury of this exculpatory evidence when they argued for Weaver's indictment. Mm-hmm. It's not totally clear to me when this following event occurred, but I believe it was in August of 1991. Kevin had his only interaction with law enforcement in regard to Randy Weaver. A man who identified himself as a marshal came to... Th- called my foster mom in Spokane looking for me. I returned the call. The man told me, you're probably not going to be able to help me, but I want to ask you something. What kind of guns does Weaver have? And would he booby trap his property? I said, you're right. I can't help you. He said, okay, and hung up. (laughs) Which actually, that's a fucking awesome answer. (laughs) Okay, so that's a good pausing point. We should probably take the dogs for a W, like, real fast, because they're driving us nuts. Um, and they're probably driving all of you nuts, so we're going to be right back. We're back. Everybody's pottied. Everybody's poopied. The dogs are wrestling over their wubba. They're going to make noise no matter what we do, so at least... I know it sounds like they're fighting, but Link is just... Uh, that's just how he sounds when he plays. He's a terror. He's part chihuahua. Okay. So for the next 18 months, the Weavers stayed holed up in their cabin, even when Vicky gave birth to their last child, Elisha Ann, on October 24th, 1991, at 11.15 a.m. Randy said that Vicky was in labor for 36 hours and said this of his wife. She was so tiny, yet so tough. According to Sarah, her brother Sam was the first person to make the baby smile. In their 18-month stay on the property, Randy claimed to have tried negotiating with the U.S. Marshal Service, but got nowhere, nor did the local sheriff ever visit the Weavers. He just called them paranoid at some point. In one interaction with U.S. Marshal Dave Hunt, Randy claims that he told him he just wanted the truth, to which Hunt replied, Truth is only philosophical. 
Randy claimed he then responded with one final message. If I believed that truth is only philosophical, I'll come off the mountain and be the best damn snitch you ever had. Huh. Hunt and Ron Evans debated what methods they should use on the Weavers. Evans wanted to use a direct tactical attack on the house, but Hunt was concerned, rightfully so, for the safety of both agents and the Weavers, and was very much interested in negotiating. Eventually, they agreed to have Sog, the special operations group, not to be confused with Zog, provide technical assistance and tactical support should it be needed. Sog then handed the Weavers' case file over to a psychologist who gave Vicky and Randy assessments. Never meeting them, which is always great. They Very sus. Very sus. They're always never accurate. I mean, maybe maybe they, there are some out there, but just from what I can tell. And like, if all you have to work with are like Vicky's like Babylon letters, like I could see reading in some, uh, reading between the lines some there, but like still. Yeah. So what she wrote in Vicky's profile would totally skew how the world viewed her as a mother. The psychologist reported that Vicky loved her family so much that she would kill her own children if it meant staying together. Randy and Sarah have said this is not who their mother was. Vicky's family and friends have said that's not who she was. In a letter to her mother, Vicky wrote, We aren't stupid nor paranoid. Nobody has to worry about being shot or in danger unless they shoot at us or are aggressive at us. Sog creeped around the property and created an assessment of what they thought would end the stalemate. Dogs are wrestling. After waiting months for the report, it came back with zero, zero recommendations. So all of the game, just like, how can we resolve this peacefully? You can't, is what they came up with. So yeah. great work. So now all of the government agencies involved are collectively shitting their pants. They were convinced that Randy was crazed and would shoot on sight and that the property was booby trapped. And, unfortunately, negotiations were going nowhere. And so began Operation Northern Exposure. After an article was released on March 8th in the Spokesman Review, written by Bill Moreland, the story blew up and reporters were flocking to the mountain. Geraldo Rivera even had a chopper there, yeah, which Randy flipped off. (laughs) All right, go, Randy. (laughs) On the news next day, which is a great way to not be on the news, is flipping off the cameras. <laughs> All right, I don't support pretty much anything Randy did, but flipping off Geraldo Rivera is pretty cool. Yeah, they were listening <laughs> to the radio the next day, and they were saying that they sh- the Weaver shot at them. That tracks. And then later, the the pilots were like, "Well, maybe it's not true." It's like, Jesus Christ, guys, it's come on! It's gotta be on camera, right? <laughs> it's gotta be on camera, right? <laughs> That's sort of the whole thing with having the news chopper. Um, because I'm. I was running out of time. I'm not going to go super into the whole surveillance aspect and like super deep into the woods or weeds about who said what to get what ball rolling. If you want all that information, it's in Jess Walter's book. Um, the kind of most notable action for me was that um, the Weavers had discovered a hidden camera on the property and they had burned it. Um, so they definitely like. They knew they were being watched, but like they had evidence that they were being watched. Like aside yeah, from yeah. like, you know, the the cops the media. calling them paranoid is sort of bullshit. When, yeah. Like, like when you start finding cameras put on your property that you didn't put there, uh, you have somewhat of a right to be at least a little paranoid. Yeah. <laughs> just, just throwing that out there. Yeah. 
Another thing I'd like to make note of before we wrap up this short episode, yay, is a conversation between two of the deputies that were involved in the ordeal that occurred the day before shit went down. One of the men who is a medic asked the other agent if they should have a medical helicopter on standby the next day in case something went wrong. The other agent assured him it would be fine. It, in fact, was not going to be fine. That's so dumb. Yeah. So that's um, where we're going to end part two. Yeah, I wanted to bring up something, too. The, uh, this article that was released by Bill Moreland. There's... Like, obviously, like, the the planning stages were already going into effect for the actual, like, the actual arrest attempt, the real breach of the property, not just the skulking around in the woods and putting up game cameras and stuff, but, like, actually trying to apprehend the weavers. Um, a lot of it, like, the gas pedal was put down when this article came out because the article was basically talking about, was basically about, like, like it's not Sandpoint that they're at, but they're close by because they're in the Panhandle. It doesn't matter. Whatever, whatever town in Idaho they were close to, it's like we have our own. We have a fugitive in our own back backyard. Was sort of like the title. It was broadly what the title was about, and it made the ATF and the FBI look really bad. Not as bad as the events would, <laughs> but <laughs> hindsight being what it is. At the moment, it felt they felt like it made them look really bad because it looked like they weren't able to apprehend like one guy alone on a mountain, or not alone, but one guy on a mountain. Um, and that that definitely added to the uh, the environment of we need to rush through this, and was part of the reason a lot of the planning went or just was like very slapdash and in his book sog said they went with the cheapest and quickest method yeah. that was their yeah the cheapest yeah. and quickest method was their response to being made to look incompetent by a news article um which frankly personally i'd much rather be made to look incompetent by a news article than my own shitty actions but any who's will be yeah um yeah, it was, in fact, not fine. It's not going to be fine, y'all, in part three. Um, I am hoping by the time the next episode comes out, Marty's making a nest. Good girl, lay down. Um, by the time next episode comes out, I will have an email for you guys that you can email me, because it's 2023 now, um, and you can... Week. Send in topic requests. If you want to be a guest, you can request that. Tell me what you want to talk about. Um, you can give me feedback. I only accept nice feedback. No negative comments allowed. I'll respond, I'll respond to the mean feedback. Yeah, you're, otherwise I'll just be sitting here crying. I'm going to send my fiancé after you. I can write a very firmly worded email. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, constructive feedback is always welcome. Um... And then there was another reason I was going to give you the email, but I don't remember what it was, so whatever. Um, we're just going to wrap it up. And Are you going to say the email? No, because I haven't set it up yet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you will by the time this is posted. Yeah, I'm giving myself a month to set up an email account. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, so Gil, baby, thanks for doing this again. No problem. I know it's really late and we're tired. 
and the dogs have been absolute fucking nightmares. Now that we're done, they're laying down, but this whole time they've been like chewing on us and wrestling and crying. Well, they've been chewing on you. They never yes. chew on me. <laughs> I'm a chew toy. So thank you all for listening. Um, I'm not. I'm gonna be honest. Um, part three. It'd be ideal if it came out, you know, kind of early, but maybe it'll probably be next month. It'll probably be next month. Yeah. Um, I've got quite a bit of research to do, and like I said, I started a full-time job. So, oh, that's right. Um, nope, I already said that. Yep, yeah, it's time to go. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.